Good morning, Southbridge. I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you found the strength and energy to come here this weekend. And I'm grateful that it's not me and four people just hanging out and me preaching to four people. Um, so glad that you're here. I hope that you do find rest this weekend. We know that Memorial Day weekend is uh, actually a time to reflect and be grateful to those that have given such a sacrifice for our nation. And so if you have had a family member, a loved one that gave their life in service and um, yielded their life uh, in such a way, we just want to acknowledge that and we wanted to say we're grateful for that sacrifice. In fact, I know it's not Veterans Day, but if you have had someone that has served and you've lost them to military service that they've given their life or you yourself have served, would you mind standing? And we'll just give a round of applause for your sacrifice. Thank you. That's great. Thank you. I know that clapping is not much of an offering uh, for what you've given, but we are grateful and we'd be remiss if we didn't mention so. And so we're grateful that you're here on this weekend. If this is your first time here or if you've never done it before, we'd ask that you take time to fill out the connection card, which you can find in your bulletin. It was given to you on your way in. Take that filled out card. We just want to know how you heard about us. And then take that card out to the first time guest kiosk where we have a gift for you. It's just our way of saying Thank you for being here. I was thinking this week a bit about Memorial Day and looking it up and where its beginnings were and just thinking about the sacrifices that were made. And I was reminded of a story, uh, not much of a story, but an encounter I had several years ago. I was watching a, I think it was a war movie with my wife and my mom was in town from Michigan and she'd said briefly in the middle of the movie to my wife, I don't think Jason would ever do well in war. She's right. She's right because we know that there's a special kind of courage that takes place in the hearts of those that have given their lives to such things. And uh, courage is something that, uh, let me just put it this way, I am not who I want to be yet. This morning we're going to talk about courage. We're continuing on in our series called Movement, which is really the study of the book of Acts. And we're coming closer to the end. And we've been working through each chapter, each verse in an expositional style, but different topics come up when you do this. And this morning we're just going to focus on courage. Now really the, today's text is a setup for next week, so you have to come back next week. The best part of today's message is next week. So make sure you come. But looking at this idea of courage, there's lots of forms and expression of courage, isn't there? Lots of kinds. The courage to ride the big roller coaster. Some of you have it and some of you don't, right? The courage to speak in public. Some have that courage, some don't. The courage to eat vegetables. All of you have it, one of us doesn't. Okay. The courage to go somewhere new or to change jobs. Some of us have that, some of us don't. The courage to do something that you aren't sure you'll succeed at. That's a kind of courage, isn't it? This week I saw a video of someone um, standing like on a surfboard and paddling. I don't know what's called paddle something. Uh, I put that together myself. And uh, they were paddling along a great white shark. That's a form of courage attached with lunacy. In fact, the person got in the water and was using their GoPro cam to film the great white shark. I don't swim with swimming mouths. That's what it is to me. I'm not pro shark. If you're pro shark and you have a problem with me, we can talk later. That's a form of courage, isn't it? It's not false modesty when I say this. It's more of a, con it's a confession <clears throat> that I am not as courageous as I would like to be. I do not like facing fears, <laughs> uh, potential loss or pain of any kind. Uh, physical, emotional, relational, spiritual, I don't, I don't like it. So I don't relish the opportunity to be in any kind of conflict or tough spot. I hate fighting. So honestly, confessing before you as one of your pastors that there's honest, honestly, there's been times that I've been a coward. It's not something that men uh, are supposed to strive for, uh, to be cowards. 
And for me, and the opportunity that God's given me and the role and responsibilities I've had and I've said yes to, agreed to, I encounter very personal scenarios, not just theories, theology, and doctrines. And I do engage those, of course, but those engage people. Those intersect with people and their stories. And I have the privilege of hanging out with people, and I usually hang out with people when things are rough or bad. That is to my joy to be a part of that. I like to be a part of it. However, Sometimes I'm called upon then to give a take or a view or a response. And I know that what I'm going to say is something that they don't want to hear. And that's hard for me. So I want everyone to be happy. And we know that all of us face such things. I don't always relish the opportunities to share with others what God's word has to say about a particular um, topic or circumstance. But isn't it true that sometimes speaking the truth in love requires courage? Like the courage to love someone enough to tell them what is true. Sometimes the truth creates conflict. Isn't that right? So as Christians, we all face opportunities to love others enough, to love them enough to share the gospel with them. And this is the things that this is the very thing that Christians are commissioned to do, to share the gospel, to make disciples, is to confront people with the most important truth. We are dead without Christ. What do you mean by dead? I'm some, you're walking and living and breathing. We're spiritually dead. When someone says they're a spiritually per, spiritual person, they don't have Christ, the Bible says they're dead. And I was dead. And then we confront folks with the truth and ourselves with the truth that Christ died for our sins and rose again, conquering death so that whoever believes in him would have true life. That's a form of confrontation because we're telling someone, we've been told ourselves that you were, we're going the wrong way. So for many, even, know, even knowing that for Christians, this is our purpose, and it's been the purpose of the study of the book of Acts, is that we would be his witnesses into this world. The book of Acts is really about what God's spirit is doing through willing vessels, people, as he shares the, the gospel, just branches out across the known globe. And today in 2014, we get to be a part of it. And knowing that still, sometimes we lack courage. Isn't that true? I used to do a questionnaire with students when I was in student ministry as a youth pastor in student ministry, and I used to ask the question just to get to know them better. Is it harder for you to share with someone that you know or don't know? Let's just do that for fun. I didn't know this first service, but by raise of hand, is it harder for you to share the gospel with someone you know, don't know? Yeah, some of both, right? For me, it was harder to share with someone that I know because in my codependency, I was afraid that if I shared the truth with them and what God's word is to say about their lives and for them, that I might lose them. So I'd rather have them than tell them the truth, which is making it about me. Mm. But for others, it's the stranger that's hard because they're afraid they don't know enough or not smart enough or the stranger might be smarter than them. They're making it about them. <laughs> mm. So where does courage come from? And this morning we have an opportunity and we'll have to work quickly to do some self-evaluation, which is really the same thing we do every Sunday. So some questions for you. If you're a note taker, you have lots of opportunities today. So here's the first question to think about as you're evaluating your life. Am I willing to courageously live for Christ in all circumstances? Not Jason, but you. And I'll ask for myself, okay? Am I willing to courageously live for Christ in all circumstances? So courage always has a motivator and a source. When I was a child, I had a, we had a public pool, a city pool that had high dives at it. I don't think they exist anymore. <laughs> I don't know if there's been enough lawsuits and things like that. But back in the day, in the 80s, there was high dives. And there were certain people to impress by jumping off high dives, I thought. So as a 10-year-old, I went for it. I faced my fear, and I smacked my back like lightning hitting me. 
Where does the courage come from to do such a thing as a youth? My motivation to be praised or liked was enough. Courage always has a motivator and source. So let's ask this question. Where does the courage come from to imitate Christ? Where does the courage come from to imitate God's character and abide by God's word in every kind of circumstance? What does it take to have the kind of courage to face someone who has wronged you and forgive them? What, where does the courage come from to go to someone that you've wronged and ask for their forgiveness? Hmm? Where does the courage come from to share the gospel with someone at potential cost to yourself? So the question that we're asking first, and we'll ask several, is am I willing to courageously live for Christ in all circumstances? So if you've got a copy of the scriptures with you, turn to Acts chapter 25 as we continue our series. Acts chapter 25. If you remember from last week, we've been looking at this life a man's uh, name, uh, named Paul. We've been looking at his life, and basically what's happened is that in the middle of the book of Acts, um, this guy, Paul, he used to be named Saul. He has an encounter with the Lord, a confrontation with the Lord, and God says, you're going the wrong way. In fact, Paul used to kill Christians, approve the killing of Christians, and God intervened in his life and turned his world upside down. Even his name changed from Saul to Paul. And so the rest of the book of Acts has really been about what God's been doing through his life and his teammates' life to spread the gospel. And last week we saw that the mission of God brought Paul before a governor named Felix, and Felix didn't really know what to do with him. Felix is a representative of Rome, and he's got these Jewish leaders that are against Paul and want Paul dead. But Felix knows that Paul's a Roman citizen, and there's conflict there. And so what Felix does, he just does the Jews a favor by putting Paul in prison. Attempts to pacify the crowd so that his leadership would not be thwarted. But in time, Felix was called, he was called for his resignation. And so we come to our text today. Knowing now that in the verse before this chapter, Paul has been in prison for two years in the overlapping time of leadership. Two years. Acts chapter 25, verse 1. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They urgently requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem. Why? For they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. These people want Paul out. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against him there if he has done anything wrong. Hmm. Festus then had just been inducted as um, the governor of Judea. He has inherited a corrupt administration from Felix who went before him and the unresolved problem of Paul who is still being held in prisoner in Caesarea. So according to um, Acts chapter 24, Paul has been in prison for two years in the overlap of leadership. And we know that in chapter 23, the Lord himself appeared to Paul while in prison and told him that he was going to go all the way to Rome with the gospel. And yet Paul's been waiting in prison. It seems like his life has been put on hold for two years. So putting yourself in the text and thinking from Paul's perspective, knowing that you have this promise that someday the gospel is going to go through all the way to Rome, but you're stuck in Caesarea, which is a real place. It still exists. What would you be going through? What would you be thinking in your mind and you're sitting in prison? Show of hands, who likes waiting? No, no one? Okay. What would you be thinking? God told me this, and where is it? what's happening? See, some of you have children. You've been praying to the Lord and asking the Lord that those children might know Christ, might know the Lord. They've gone, they're wayward, and you wish they'd make right decisions. You keep appealing to the Lord. Where is, when's it happening, God? 
You've asked the Lord over and over again if he's noticed your plight, if he's noticed the trouble you faced. Where is he? Where is he? And you're in this time of, of waiting. Can you identify? We know that God's plan for Paul is actually the same for us, that we'd go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to do everything that Christ has commanded, to love him and to love others. But sometimes it feels like we're in waiting. Maybe there's a loved one that you shared the gospel with over and over again. And Lord, I'm trying to accomplish your plan. I'm trying to do your plan for you. Why are you having me wait? Hmm. So a question we have to ask ourselves as it relates to courage is this. Is am I willing to courageously wait? Or will I lose heart? And allow doubt and the circumstances to overcome God's promises. See, we experienced something like this just a few weeks ago when we were studying um, on Mother's Day. We took a break from this passage and we looked at an Old Testament passage where a woman was promised great things by the Lord that she was going to have a family that she hadn't had children yet. And so this woman named Sarah thought she'd take God's promises into her own hands and make God's promises and plan happen by offering her husband to her servant. And the husband inclined. You'd think it'd be a bad idea, wouldn't it? But sometimes we think nonsensically, when we're at a place where we're putting God's promises and plan against our circumstances, and we think, I need to take control. So what if Paul says in prison, that's it, God, you said I'm going to Rome. Obviously, I'm not going to Rome. I'm done with you. I'm done with this. I'm going to go back to my friends who suggest that I never come out here anyway. They'll like me. It'll be easier. We've done a good work, God. Good job. It's been good. You've done a lot of life change, and now it's time for me to go make tents at home and live out the rest of my days. That's a possibility, isn't it? So as the Lord, Lord works out his plan at his pace, will we have the courage to, to have worshipful patience to see what he unfolds, where he leads next, and to do what he asks? Isn't it possible that God's doing something in the waiting? You're waiting, but he's moving other people into place, like removing one Governor Felix and putting in another Governor Festus so that both can hear the gospel? How strategic of the Lord. Hmm. And yet we think we're good shot callers about God's timing. Even after two years, the Jewish leaders wanted to kill Paul. They've not forgotten that Paul's in prison. And now they want the new governor to act according to their will. They do not want to see this message of Christ go any farther because more and more Jews and now Gentiles are saying yes to this message. And Paul seems quite compelling because he himself was such a dedicated Jew. So Festus quickly grasped the political implications of doing what the Jews requested, and Festus declined. Not because he was seeking to spare Paul from the danger of assassination, but because of the political loss of faith that would result for him. Personally, if there was going to be a trial, it would not be in Jerusalem, he decided. Paul was a Roman citizen, and Festus was a representative of the Roman government. So he would try the case and would do so at his headquarters, the scriptures tell us. And it was a brilliant move on the part of Festus. He would not begin his leadership, his, his reign, by having his subordinates telling him what to do. He was going to call the shots. However, this resolve doesn't last too long. Let's look at the next verse. Verse 6. After spending 8 or 10 days with him, that's interesting writing by Luke, by the way, because he's so specific. I don't know, 8 or 10. Jason, that's not the important part. Keep going. After spending eight or ten days with them, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he convened the court in order that Paul be brought before him. When Paul appeared, the Jews had come down from Jerusalem, stood around him, and began bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Then Paul made his defense, I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews, or against the temple, or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, 
This phrase is shared three times in a matter of 10 verses. Said to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there in these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done anything wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I'm guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by the Jews are not true, no one has right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his council, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. Paul had been confined in a jail cell for two years and his accusers still had no case against him. They'd bring something up and it just wouldn't stand. They either they didn't agree and before, before Festus, they're giving false information. They can't agree to, on their own case together against Paul or Paul simply just refutes it with the facts. His defense refers to the three alleged offenses, something against the people, against the law. Even though in the chapter before, Paul says, I love the law. I abide by the law. He's done nothing against the temple and he's done nothing against Rome or Caesar himself. This seems unfair, doesn't it? When someone says something about you that's not true, does that bother you? Does anybody have a truth issue? Paul's encountering now people that are being unfair to him and now he's engaging with a governor that's being unfair against him that wants to do something as a favor for the people that he oversees. He wants to do a favor for them because he wants to keep some kind of political rest and he's willing to compromise his position to do that, knowing that Paul has done nothing wrong. This reminds me of the scriptures and the scriptures clearly state that people will say and revile, say wrong things and revile against those that are trying to promote the truth courageously. In fact, the psalmist writes in Psalm 109 some of these very things. Psalm 109 verse 4. God, whom I praise, do not remain silent. So we have a prayer here unto the Lord from the psalmist. Next verse. For wicked and deceitful men have opened their mouths against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongues. With words of hatred, they surround me. They attack me without cause. In return for my friendship, they accuse me. But I'm a man of prayer. In fact, instead of Christ, Peter writes this, these very things about Jesus Christ himself in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And who is that? His father, yeah, verse. So we see Festus proposes this compromise to Paul. In the midst of all this accusation, false accusation, and now Festus is compromising, even though in the previous passage he said he wasn't going to do what he's about to do, to offer. He's proposing something which in his mind should have been acceptable to all. So he proposed to Paul that they go to Jerusalem together, where he would stand trial, and at which he, Festus, would preside, even though Festus knows that on the way, the Jews were going to kill him, kill Paul. So the motive is in the text. He wished to do the Jews a favor. How political. The chances of a fair trial then are very slim. Isn't it true as a believer that we face things that are unfair? Whether you're a believer or not a believer, you face things that are unfair. Isn't it true that our lives intersect with people that do things for their own gain? Political moves and gestures. Maybe you experience this at work. So even though in the beginning of the text, Festus said no to the idea of a trial in Jerusalem, now he's offering it. Paul has been tried and the charges against him have not been proven. So it's the duty of Festus to pronounce him innocent. But in seeking to please the Jews, he's failing to carry out his duty. This is wrong, unfair, unjust. 
how would you respond? See, to, to some degree, we all face such things, don't we? So the question we have to ask ourselves is this, is am I willing to courageously face unfair circumstances? As we're looking about living a life courageously for the Lord in all circumstances, one of the circumstances we face is injustice. Things that aren't fair. Someone else gets credit for your work. Someone else gets the promotion even though you deserve it. You are uncelebrated, underappreciated, overlooked, unrecognized. How do you respond? My disposition, I think, I'm I'm not a courageous person, but I I have a truth issue. And I wonder if I would just be appealing. I wonder if my voice would raise. I mean, Scott, our lead pastor, has engaged with me the most of anyone here at Southbridge. You'd probably think that my voice would probably raise. I'd probably sweat a little bit. Because I couldn't comprehend Festus not getting it. I need to hear you say, Festus, that you're being a jerk. I need to hear you say it. I need to hear you say that you're placating to people. You're doing something, you're violating your conscience by doing the thing that you know is wrong. And yet we don't see anything like that from Paul. When Christ is standing before Pontius Pilate and Pilate is knowing that Christ is innocent, Pilate does the same thing by doing a people a favor because he wants some rest there so that his higher-ups don't take away his leadership. So Pilate hands Christ over. But when Christ and Pilate are having their engagement, Christ says very little. What if Christ talks Pilate into justice? That means Christ is not going to the cross. Ah, so what if Paul speaks so well and so eloquently that Festus finds the courage to do the right thing politically, then Paul's never going to Rome. Hmm. Something else that Festus offers here that we have to ask ourselves is this, is am I willing to courageously stand against bad compromise? Now we know in families there's compromises that are good. And in marriage counseling, we do these kind of things, talk about good compromise and good forms of leadership and servant leadership. One spouse wants to go to the beach for vacation. The other one wants to go to the mountains. How do they decide? Usually a compromise. There's an opportunity to take a new job, but it requires a move. How do they decide? Usually someone compromises. The car fails, and you only have so much money either to get the new car or do something else. How do you decide what to do? There's usually a form of compromise. So there is such thing as good compromise, but there's also bad compromise. We see this oftentimes as adults date, and then one adult has such a a view that, you know what, we should just treat each other, we should have purity in our relationship and all these things, and the other person just kind of eggs on and says, well, maybe we could. There's guys at work, and they come up with a plan where you can get a little bit more money, and no one has to know about it. It's just kind of like taking a little cut on the side, and the company doesn't have to know because it's not that much. Steal work, steal time from work, and you go out with your buddies even though you're on the clock, and it's not that big of a deal. See, we're invited all the time to compromise. Good compromise and a bad compromise. How do you navigate those? Do we have the courage then to reject a bad compromise? Have you ever heard this phrase before? Let's just agree to disagree. No, I will not. I agree to not agree to disagree. Here's why. There's some things I don't care about. You know, there's some places, something, we're talking about where to go to lunch. I have mild care. But if we're talking about if Jesus is the way or not, and someone else says they're not, I believe so confidently in my view that if you don't hold to these things, then I think my faith is that you go to hell. So how can I just say agree to disagree and not bring it up over and over again? Because my belief is so strong and my love for you is so great. I have to agree to agree. I agree to keep arguing with you till you agree. (laughs) Right? Now, some people, when they fight, when they fight with a spouse or fight with a friend, they fight to win. 
That's not the point here when we're talking about having the courage, a Christian courage, a godly courage to not compromise. It's saying, I'm not going to say there's Jesus is the way and there's many ways. That doesn't work. So Paul is given a compromise. Hey, well, let's go back to Jerusalem. Even though I said we're going to do that, let's go back and do that. So in light of Festus' offer, Festus's offer of compromise, Paul uses his rights as a Roman citizen to the full. Did you catch it? He exercises his right of appeal to Caesar. I was talking with Scott about this last week. It seems like bad leadership by a Caesar. I will meet with anyone that says they want to meet with me. Wow. I can't imagine our president doing that. And yet it was the right of every Roman citizen. They're at an impasse. Some say that Paul did this because he knew he wouldn't get a fair trial. I think there's another view. He wants to get to Rome. God's already said he's going to do it. He wants to blow out the gospel with whoever he can. This guy's already heard it. Huh? So Festus was the representative of Caesar and had no right to hand him over to Jewish tribunal. Look at verse 11 again. This is probably my second favorite verse in the, in the chapter. Verse 11. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. So while Paul appealed to his rights for a proper trial in Rome, the right of every Roman citizen, he does not cling tightly, this is amazing, I think, courageous, to the rights of his life. When he says, if I'm supposed to die for something that I've really done wrong because of Christ, if I've really broken a law that does exist for the sake of Christ, I don't refuse to die. I'm willing to die. Have you heard recently, maybe you saw on the news or read on social media of this woman named Miriam Ibrahim? I believe she's a Sudanese woman who married a Christian man who was also Sudanese but fled to the States. Then has come back and now they're married. They have a toddler together and she's eight or nine months pregnant now and she's been sentenced to death because of her faith in marrying a Christian man. The Sudanese government has the right to establish their government in the way they want and this is one of the rules that they have that you can't do that. She's violating that rule. So she stands before a judge in Sudan, and the Sudan says, you need, the judge says, you need to recant of your faith, recount of your faith. And upon being asked to renounce her faith, Miriam refused, and I only have one quote from her saying, I will remain a Christian. So the sentence has been death. After she gives birth to her child, then she'll be tortured and hung. Her toddler's also with her because the toddler's not allowed to be with her dad because it's against the government policy that a Christian man can raise a child because the child is perceived to be Muslim. That's the government's ruling. Now we look on that, at that on this side of the world and say how wrong that is. However, she's saying this. They're saying you're going to die unless you step away from the faith. And she's saying, no, I'm not going to do that. See, that would be a bad compromise. Is that courage? See, it's one thing for me to talk like this amongst people that I perceive are safe. But it's another thing to stand before a judge that will decide on your life, even though the Lord is the judge of all. And the Lord has established everyone in the government as they are. No. And Paul says the same. Paul is the one who would pen to live as Christ and to die as gain. That means if I'm living, I'm living for Christ to make him known. And if I die, it's great because I get to be with Christ. Either way, I'm a winner. Hmm. Isn't that Christ's invitation to us, by the way? <laughs> to come follow me and die? To die to yourself? Isn't it more than, it's not more, it's more than simply, hey, come and let everyone gets to go to heaven. Repeat these words after me, then you get to go to heaven. Was that Jesus' invitation? Peter, say after me these things, and then you get to go to heaven someday because you said the things. 
Christ's invitation is come and die. And Miriam seems to get it. And Paul seems to get it. And they've got some kind of courage from the Lord. Die to yourself. Come, follow me, deny yourself. Take up your cross is the idea of dying. Christ died on a cross. We die to ourselves. And yet, oftentimes what we pitch is, I believe that Jesus died and rose again, he, and that has no bearing how I live, but I get to go to heaven. I trust in God's word when Jesus has to talk about what it takes to go to heaven. That It's by faith. It's not by my works. I believe in that. But that will have no bearing on how my life will be run. If I got to compromise and do these different things, you know, the world is so different back right now in 2014 than it was back then. God doesn't have those views. Christian courage, then, is the willingness to say and do the right thing regardless of earthly cost so as to point people to Christ. That means, then, that courage is indispensable for both spreading and preserving the truth of Christ. Jesus promised that the spreading of the gospel would meet resistance. We know this. In fact, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 9, as he's speaking to the disciples, here's a promise that no one likes to claim. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and be put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. Just remember God's promises. Paul says the same about the future. After his time will pass, he writes in Acts chapter 20, verse 29 and 30, that he knows that after he leaves, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. He's not talking to shepherds here in the sense that it's literal sheep. He's talking about people. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw disciples after them. Paul writes to a young pastor in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through 5, about very similar things here. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge, Timothy. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. Just so you know, people don't like to be corrected or rebuked. But they love to be encouraged. As long as it fits with what they've already decided. and things. With great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come, and let me ask you this, is this time here yet? When men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. That's called placating. And Christians, we surround ourselves with people that will do that for us. We want people to say what we want to hear. Next verse. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy, keep your head in all situations. Sounds like modern language, doesn't it? Endure hardship, do the work of evangelists, discharge the duties of your ministry. So don't compromise on the truth, don't have the courage then, do have the courage to courageously stand up against bad compromise, to, to face unfair circumstances. And since the Lord had told Paul that he would testify in Rome, Paul has the courage that is informed by trusting in the truth of God's word and character. Paul's appeal to Caesar then is another opportunity, another platform to do what? Preach the gospel. So running from resistance in evangelism dishonors Christ. That's true. And isn't it true that there's a kind of cowardice that tells only the truths that are safe to tell? It's like confessing when you've been found out. Well, it's easy for you to confess that now everyone knows this. I admit that I did. Yeah, we all just saw it on tape, man. Yeah. 
I read recently of a famous atheist who had uh, the courage enough to, at a rally of atheists, so it was a rally about unbelief and beliefs, or beliefs of unbelief, and, I don't know how to say it. And in that, he said that if you meet a Christian, make fun of them. They're committing intellectual suicide. Mock them, scorn them, so until the point where they change. And there's a big rally, a big to-do about that. And a lot of people are laughing and enjoying that. However, I'd like for that same man to say that in Iran. Because this guy's not just saying about Christians, but about anyone that believes in God. See, you can say that kind of stuff in the States. And your pocket of people are cool. Make fun of Christians. Make fun of people that believe in a God, that God exists. But if you go to a place that's like Iran, where they really care about what people have to say about, what, about God... You're done. So it works both ways. For the believer, for the atheist, whatever, it's easy to say truths and to not compromise when you're hanging out with the buddies. But what about at cost to yourself? The question we have to ask ourselves then is, am I willing to courageously share the gospel in all circumstances? Where does this kind of courage come from? What is its source then? If courage has a source and a motivator, what is it in terms of what Paul is experiencing, what Timothy was encouraged to experience, what we see the people of old are encouraged to live out and do live out? Here's some ideas, and you can just write these down quickly. Here's where I think courage comes from, according to the scriptures. Number one, trusting in God's character and sovereignty. Sovereignty is this. It's not that just that God knows everything, but that he has a plan and he's working out the plan. In your waiting, in the injustice, in the unfairness, in the proposal of a bad compromise, God is working out his plan. Sovereignty isn't that, I'd like to work something out, but you're in shackles, I can't do it. Oh, those shackles. So how do we do this? We have to get to know who God is. What has God said about himself and his will for you? His will is that many would come to know Christ. And he wants to use you as an instrument of life change in the world in which you intercede, intersect. So in Hebrews chapter 11, we see that many were known for their faith and infected and influenced many people and others simply died. Some were sawn in two for the glory of God. Had the courage to die. Number two, where does this courage come from? By trusting in God's word or promises of his presence. We see this in Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, when his people are going into battle. Psalm chapter 31, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. Even Christ says this to his disciples. He promises them trouble. So if any Christian preacher, teacher tells you that there's, God doesn't want trouble in this world and he's not, there's not going to be trouble and things like that, Jesus promised that there would be trouble. That's what the Bible says. But then he says this, but take heart, which is a phrase for saying have courage. I've overcome that stuff. I'm bigger than that stuff. And I'll be with you. Now, Christ is not with us in his physical form like he was with the apostles. He rose and ascended the Father's side, so he, he sends his spirit. And at the point of faith, when you place your faith and confidence in Christ's work, what he's done for you, his spirit now resides within you. That's why there's this phrase that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. His presence then is perpetually with those that are found in Christ. That truth can help enable courage. I've got Christ. You're going to lose your job because of your faithfulness to the job, because you were truthful. You've got Christ. It's okay. You might not have a job. It's okay. Right? Number three, from knowing that God is greater than any adversary. See, sometimes we get worked up in word because we're not sure if God's bigger than the problem. So we make the problem bigger than him. And we see scriptures over and over again that have found, we find people that have this courage knowing that God is bigger than the circumstance. Second Chronicles chapter 32. How about the story of David and Goliath? Have you heard that one before? Where David is uh, this youth and he sees this giant of a man that's 
um, cursing God and God's people. And David says, I'm not going to put up with that anymore. So he confronts Goliath. He's not confronting him because David himself thinks he's awesome. It's because he thinks God's awesome. And you may know the rest of the story. But every word that David says is a big word about the renown of the Lord, not himself. That confidence, that courage comes from knowing that God is bigger than this thing. And you've got Christ if you are in Christ. Number four, through prayer. And this seems like a classic church answer if you've grown up in church. Prayer is practicing the presence of God. It's not a monologue or a wish list like we give to Santa or whoever. It's a, it's a dialogue with him where we hear what he has to say through his word and by his spirit and the promptings that he gives us according to his word and by his spirit. And we yield our anxieties to him and we speak to him about our troubles because he cares for us, the Bible says. We see this in Psalm 138 and Ephesians chapter 6. Number five, last one for today, but there's tons and tons of them, tons of things that inform our courage. It's from the example of others. And that's what we're looking at Paul right now as a setup for next week. And we've talked about the story of, of Miriam in Sudan, and we need to be praying for her that God gives her grace. I pray for her release, but I pray that God would give her grace. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 14, it's a, it's a book that was written to the church that Paul helped plant in Philippi. And he writes, because of my chains, because I'm in prison and I'm writing to you from prison, most of the brothers in the Lord, then the people that have come to know Christ, these Christians, have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. What he's saying is this, because I'm in prison for the name of Christ, other people are now looking at that and saying, let's go share the gospel. What's wrong with those people? Something that they believe that God is bigger than, that they're just on this mission. Courageously so. A question to ask ourselves then is, have I avoided God-given opportunities because I lack courage? Two years imprisonment had neither broken Paul's courage nor paralyzed his presence of mind. No desire of revenge against his wicked enemies. No conspiracy against his unrighteous judges. No impatience at such a long trial. But calm submission to Roman law. And confident trust in divine protection. Amazing. Look at the next verse. We got to fly here. Verse 13. By the way, in the first service at this point, I turned two pages at once and started reading in chapter 28, and I read like five verses, and no one said anything. They just let me go. Don't do that. Be a friend. Okay. First service. Okay. Verse 13. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king, and he said, There is a man whom Felix left as prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not Roman custom to hand, them, hand over any man before he has faced accusers and has had an opportunity to defend himself against their charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and offered ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with anything that crimes that I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. No question mark there, but that's how I envisioned how he said it. Because the next verse says this, he doesn't, he doesn't understand the circumstances. 
I was at a loss how to investigate such matters. I'm not into this religious stuff. So I asked if he'd be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. When Paul made his appeal to be held for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Here's why. Because Festus cannot waste the emperor's time by sending an accused man with no accusations. (laughs) His job is at stake. His name is at stake by doing such a thing. So he's hoping that Agrippa's got some insight. Hmm. Herod Agrippa, as he comes here, Agrippa II, his father's name was Agrippa, because he's the first, is the ruler under Roman provision of the territory northeast of Festus's province. So he arrived in Caesarea on a complimentary visit to congratulate Festus on his new appointment, and Festus was, if anything, then superior to Herod. Just giving you some background here. Even though Herod was king, he was king like um, Queen Elizabeth is the queen. Okay? Agrippa was really Roman-oriented because he was raised in Rome. He's Roman in allegiance, but he's Jewish. So as king, as an appointed king over a certain province of people, and as according to the Old Testament and the laws, the king is supposed to also appoint the priests, and he's over Jewish religion and custom. So you have this person that's committed to Rome and Roman allegiance, raised in Rome, placed as king, and he's over all this, um, the Jewish church stuff, Okay. On his visit, Agrippa was accompanied by his sister, Bernice. And over and over again, you'll see Agrippa and Bernice. Agrippa and Bernice. Agri- Bernice is Agrippa's sister, who was married to Agrippa's uncle at one point, and then had several other husbands. And as she leaves each one, she comes back to Agrippa. And Josephus, the historian, lets us know that Agrippa and Bernice have an incestuous relationship. And so some people think that the author keeps putting the two together so that everyone keeps knowing about how detestable this couple is. And even the Romans think it's detestable. So you have a detestable couple coming now to oversee and interview someone who's trying to make Christ known. It's a contrast, isn't it? More history for you. Bernice's sister Drusilla was the wife of Felix, the previous governor. And Bernice then was constantly coming back to her brother. The Herodian family then was a whole family of kings, and we see them all throughout the New Testament. Agrippa's father was the one who beheaded James and had Peter in prison. Um, Agrippa's uncle was the one who had um, John the Baptist beheaded because his wife um, had some problems with the fact that John the Baptist was calling them out because they were also, um, well, that Herod was having an affair with his brother's wife. And no one liked that they were being confronted about that. And Agrippa II's great-grandfather was the one that had all the babies in Bethlehem killed when he heard about the king being born up through Bethlehem, who was Christ. Herod's family, the Herods keep coming into contact with the gospel. Is that random? Agrippa's family had heard about this Christ for a long time. And since the charges brought against Paul were really religious and not matters concerning Roman law, Festus was incompetent to deal with them. Not that he could admit it to everyone. So Festus hoped Agrippa might give him some unofficial help in directing his report for Caesar. So Festus says, well, the circumstances set before him. And verse 19 is my favorite verse in the chapter. Here it is again. Verse 19. Ooh, that's chapter 28. That's where it happened right there. Instead, they had some points of dispute. This is Festus speaking to Agrippa. 
with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. Festus has here correctly stated the central point of Paul's preaching about Jesus as no longer dead but alive. Hmm. Festus just in a sense shared the gospel to the king. The fundamental issue over the person of Jesus is the issue. And Paul insisted that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, which he can reason from with other Jewish believers. And then other people that are interested or wondering about this whole thing about Jesus and those that are staunch against Christ, he can reason with them, showing them from the Old Testament that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And some people don't like it. So the real disagreement with Paul and the people that want him out is the gospel. And I love that Festus picked up on the very thing that is of most importance, Christ's death and resurrection. Let me ask you this. If people were to do an investigation of your life and all your beliefs and your theology and your ideology and your methodologies, what one thing would they pick up most? See, because Paul is the one that also has God's view of marriage. He writes about that in Ephesians chapter 5. God's view in sexuality, he um, writes about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 6, 7. He's got God's views on worship, giving, spiritual gifts, he has all these, he knows all these, and he speaks all these things, but yet when one governor looks at him, he says, here's the big deal, Agrippa. The big deal is about, he makes a big deal about Christ. That's amazing to me. What would they say about you? Because I have strong views on marriage. I have strong views on God's agenda for sexuality. It's expressed all throughout scripture. I have some views on how church ought to go. I know what my favorite songs are. I know I have some views about spiritual gifts and how God uses them. I have a few views politically, maybe. I don't know. But if at my funeral, the biggest thing that people can say is, Jason really likes this restaurant, I failed. Jason really wanted everyone to know that this is God's agenda for marriage. I talk about marriage a lot. I love to talk about God's vision for it. But it's because it's connected to Christ and who Christ is and what he's done. So the question I have to ask myself is this, am I willing to courageously have Christ be my identity? When people think about me when I die, are they also at the same time going to think more about Christ? Or is it just going to be about my views about some things? Festus has got it right. It's amazing. I don't know how long, how many opportunities they had together. We know that at one point, Paul speaks to these leaders about things of righteousness Immoral, fidelity. But the big thing to report that he does report is that about some man named Jesus and that he rose from the dead. <laughs> wouldn't, it be, wouldn't it be amazing if more people that call themselves Christians were to make a big deal about Jesus? That was, see, that was a form of courage by me because it's kind of a jab. Look at the next verse. We got to fly here. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city. In the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made this appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing to definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so as a result of his investigation, I may have something to write. 
For I think it is unreasonable to send on a prisoner without specifying the charges against him. See, that's true. But he eventually does it. I love the beginning of that section there in verse 23. It says that with great pomp, King Agrippa and Bernice came forward. That's the, that word pomp is the word where we get the idea of like fantasia, a phantasm. Big, a big to-do. And what we see here is a contrast. We see this king come in with his wife and everyone's celebrating and all the well-wishers and all the um, hobnobbing is happening and everyone is just fake and presenting and trying to keep their position. And then you contrast that with this guy that's in prison without doing anything wrong and the shackles that are on him. So the world says, and King Agrippa says, hey, everyone, look at me. Praise me, worship me, honor me. But the believer says, look at Christ. Praise Christ, worship Christ. Paul has the courage then to have his life point toward Christ rather than himself. And we see that even in this contrast right here. Paul's in chains because he's making Christ known. And people are coming to make a judgment over him that want people to look at them and think they're awesome. (laughs) I I just had a thought here. Have you ever seen a time when someone wins an award? And they're winning an award maybe, like, let's say it's for their music, and their music's all about, like, the mistreatment of women and how awesome they are, and they want to thank God, Jesus Christ, for this award. Isn't that awesome? amazing? I use the word awesome, and my way of using it means it's the opposite, sorry. All eyes on me. I'm the one making the money. I'm the one that's big time. And I love to, I love to talk about how I degrade women and mistreat women and how I'm going to use my expenses for myself, and I'll extort whoever to get what I need and what I want in this vapor of a life. I'm going to live big and live large, and I'd like to thank God for making it possible. That's not God. Has God made it possible? Well, he is over this world, and this world is spinning, and he's given you some abilities. But it's not a praise to God that you revel in yourself. Does that make sense? And that's exactly what Agrippa's doing. And I'd like you to meet my wife. And what's Paul going to do? Hey, I'm looking forward to going to Rome. Which is interesting because I don't know if you know this or not, but Caesar Augustus at the time, those are titles, worshipped one, by the way, is Nero. Have you heard of him? He's not yet at this time in the scripture the one who will become the one famous for burning Christians for his parties, for candlelight. In time, he becomes the one that burns half of Rome and then blames the Christians for doing it so that he can justify establishing his new structures. Is that right? That's where Paul wants to go. Amazing. I don't think Paul's looking to go there so he can get free. Am I willing to courageously have Christ be my identity? If the divinely ordained goal were for Paul to have been given the opportunity to preach the gospel to the greatest number of people from the highest political and social strata of society and in the most effective manner, what would we expect to find at this point in the book of Acts? See, it was in Acts chapter 9 at Paul's conversion and then the things that happened after that, as God is speaking to one of his own servants regarding Paul, he says that he's going to be a gospel witness before Gentiles and kings. And now fast forward 16 chapters and here it is. Amazing. He didn't tell Paul all the details about the beatings, the suffering, the prison time, the torture and hunger. But he did commission him to share the gospel and promise that his own grace toward Paul would be sufficient in all these circumstances. 
So Paul has already stood before Claudius, Lysias, Felix, Festus. Now he'll stand before King Agrippa and Bernice. Next week, you got to come back. And before long, he'll stand before Caesar, not recorded in Acts, but we do know he goes to Rome. So not only did God give Paul the message, the gospel, but he also gave him the audience, the opportunity. I never would have imagined if I spoke back to my 10-year-old self that I'd be living in Raleigh, North Carolina, preaching this text today, ever, ever. Because I would have been 6'9 and playing pro basketball right now. See, the Lord doesn't have to reveal. He doesn't owe you the details. But he's clearly laid out the plan. Go and make disciples. Declare Christ. Point people to Christ. Serve others. Live for the renown of Christ and not for yourself. Seek to be an encouragement to others. Seek to live at peace with all men, but confront them with the gospel for their own sakes. These are the things that we see in Scripture. So we have the courage to do it. The courage to wait. The courage to face injustice. The courage to say no to bad compromise. The courage to live for the identity of Christ. To have Christ identify us. The courage to speak the gospel to whoever comes across our path or whoever we come across. So the last question really is, am I willing to courageously share the gospel for the sake of others and the glory of Christ? You've been commissioned to do so. We don't have to wait to bring our friends only to come hear Scott every week. What are we going to do? Let's pray. Lord, for this day, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love and grace and mercy toward us and your long-suffering patience with us. And we fret over where you're at when we're waiting. But would you give us courage? Would you grant us courage? Would you give us a hunger to get to know you more, which would inform our courage? Would you give us an understanding of your promises, which would inform our courage? Lord, would you help us learn from others? Lord, I pray for Miriam right now in the Sudan. God, I would, I would be glad to see her free. I don't long for her to feel pain for her toddler there and for the baby to be born. Lord, I pray for her husband that you give him grace. Lord, would you give them grace to suffer well? We pray for your will to be done in that regard. Lord, would you use their testimony in such a way that others might come to know you? Because what is this life but a vapor? So we suffer for a little while, then we're with you forever. Lord, would you help it to be true instead of us that when someone seeks to define the big issue in our life, that it's Jesus is the big issue. That we wouldn't become known as a people of a political persuasion or a certain viewpoint, but other than knowing and making Christ known. And then let other people, Lord, deal with the tension of who's Christ going to be to them. Lord, help us to be a benefit to our community. Help us, Lord, to figure out ways to build bridges of influence in this community so that many might come to know you. Lord, give us a hunger for your word, and Lord, give us a commitment to prayer and practicing your presence, God. We need you. Lord, we pray that you would enable us to be encouraged encouraged and courageous people for the sake of our city and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.